it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. So uh, welcome to this week's edition of the Path Went Chilly. It's only going to be co-hosted by Jules and I because Ashley is away this week. So we're going to go back to our format where I tell Jules about a case that I'm very familiar with and she's going to react to it and we'll discuss it. And I've decided to uh, do the uh, 1986 disappearance of nine-year-old Antoinette Cayadito, uh, which took place in the small town of Gallup, New Mexico. Uh, this is a very famous case. It was on Unsolved Mysteries. I covered it on The Trail Went Cold about two years ago. But I wanted to revisit it because last week, the Trace Evidence podcast released a new update episode revealing a lot of new information which had never been made public before. And uh, the reason that this has come out now is because of a YouTube series that just came out called Disappeared in Darkness, which is uh, hosted by a former journalist named Crystal Gutierrez. She was able to obtain some uh, files from an FBI investigation from the mid-1990s, and there's a lot of new information in there that has never been made public before, and is making me look at the case in a different light. So that's why I wanted to revisit it and have an all-new discussion about it, and there will be a lot to talk about. Uh, Jules, are you familiar with this case? You know, I think I heard a podcast on this case maybe like a year or two ago, Enough so that when you sent me the audio to listen to, to familiarize myself with it for when we discuss it later on, I was like, oh yeah, I definitely remember this, but the details are a little bit murky and I purposefully didn't look it up or look into any of it. I wanted it all to be fresh and I wanted to be surprised and have like genuine reactions for the listeners. Okay, so yeah, I'll give you a lot of the details and then we'll uh, discuss uh, certain aspects of the case. And uh, I'm going to start off by telling you the official narrative of the case, which has been told for over 30 years now. Uh, it's going to turn out that a lot of the stuff that I'm sharing with you may have turned out to be false, but when we finish talking about the known facts of the case, that's when I'm going to reveal the new information to, and talk about how it takes the case in a totally different direction. So uh, we start in 1986 in the town of Gallup, New Mexico, and our victim is nine-year-old Antoinette Cayadito. Uh, who was originally born on Christmas Day in 1976, so she would be nine years old at this point. Uh, she's a biracial child because her father, Larry Estrada, was Hispanic, and her mother, Penny Cayadito, uh, belonged to the Navajo Nation. But uh, Penny and Larry would wind up separating, and then Penny would go on to have two more daughters with another man, and at this point, uh, Sadie, uh, the second daughter, is seven years old, and the youngest daughter, Wendy, is five years old. I, I believe Penny was uh, now raising her children as a single mother, and uh, even though Antoinette is only nine years old at this point, uh, she is pretty much considered to be the mother figure in this family. She is considered to be very mature for her age, and helps a lot around the house trying to take care of her uh, younger sisters. And as we're going to talk about, uh, Penny did not have the best reputation as the most responsible parent. She was known for going out a lot and partying. So Antoinette pretty much had to take the reins to ensure that Sadie and Wendy were well taken care of. I think we see this dynamic so often with single parent households. Not, uh, not necessarily that the parent is like an absent parent or that they've got a substance use disorder or anything like that, but just that they're spread really, really thin across many different things. They're trying to make a living and then trying to be a mother to three daughters is a huge endeavor. And I'm sure... In retrospect, Penny looked back and was like, of course, there were things that I could have done to be a better mother, and maybe the pressure shouldn't have been on Antoinette to be that mother figure, but we often see the eldest child, particularly if it is a female child, take on that role of mother to their younger siblings when the mother isn't present for a variety of reasons, whether it be that they're at work 
or they're with a boyfriend or they're abusing drugs or alcohol. So it is a huge amount of responsibility to put on a young child. Exactly. It really does not sound like Antoinette had much of a childhood at all. And this was a very low-income housing area. The family did not have a lot of money, so uh, Penny was stretched thin and had to rely on Antoinette a lot. And as we're going to talk about later on, one of the theories that would come up is that perhaps Penny decided that having three kids was too much of a burden, and that's why she may have decided to get rid of Antoinette. But uh, the whole thing began on the morning of April the 6th, 1986, which was a Sunday, and uh, all the children woke up at 7 a.m. in order to go to Bible school. And uh, right from the outset, you see some alarm bells with the way this story unfolded, because the previous evening, Penny had gone out to a bar uh, with some friends and left her children in the company of a babysitter until she arrived home at around uh, midnight. And that in itself isn't unusual, but the story which has been shared for a long time is that after Penny sent the babysitter home, uh, she let uh, the children stay up uh, very late playing with her. And they apparently did not go to bed until around 3 a.m. And that's very unusual for children who are age 9, uh, 7, and 5 to uh, go to bed at 3 a.m. and then be up four hours later in order to go to uh, Bible school. And even though the house had four bedrooms, it was apparently common practice for all three daughters to sleep in the same bedroom with Penny. And her story has always been that they went to sleep shortly before 3 a.m., but when she woke up at 7 a.m., Antoinette was gone. I mean, there are those types of families that do all like to sleep in like a communal type of a situation all in one bedroom. But if you have a house this large, you would think that people, the children would be sleeping in like a children's bedroom. You know, like all the girls would be in there. They're kind of of that age where you may want a little bit of independence rather than sleeping in a room with your mother. And that's not to judge a situation in which parents choose to do that. I mean, it is extremely atypical, but it does work for some families. But what I do find really strange here, and I, I honestly call BS on it, it just does not sound plausible, is that after the babysitter goes home, you let the children stay up until 3 a.m.? Like, you wouldn't even do that with, like, a 16-year-old. I mean, maybe you'd let a 16-year-old stay up with their friends and watch movies until they pass out, but you're not going to be like, hey, you can stay up with me until 3. It just doesn't sound like it's grounded in reality. Exactly. And as we're going to find out later on, uh, at least one of the daughters would uh, later tell a story which says that that wasn't true at all, that this was, even though this was a story that Penny told the police, uh, it's really untruthful. And it's like, uh, it's one of those things where you're reading about the case and, and none of the law enforcement people are treating it as particularly unusual, but you're like, did I hear that right? Did these girls really stay up till 3 a.m.? Because I know when I was that age, I was not staying up that late, particularly when I had to be up early the following morning. Oh my gosh, I remember sitting on like the top of the stairs. My parents got divorced when I was really young. Like maybe when I was four, they were divorced, separated when I was three. And I remember when my mom was like dating this guy and I wanted to stay up later and she'd be like, no, you got to go to bed. And I remember sitting at the top of the stairs. And then later when my mom moved out and my dad had the house, I remember doing the same thing with my dad and he'd be like, you've got to go to bed. And I mean, I wouldn't say that my parents were extremely lenient, but I wouldn't say that they were extremely strict either. And I think when I was that age, I was, you know, you got to go to bed by 10 p.m. at the latest. Um, How old was Antoinette at this time? Uh, nine years old. Nine years old. Yeah, they would have been like, you got to be in bed by 9 p.m. Maybe if they let me stay up a little bit later, it would have been 10 p.m. And I do recognize that all families operate differently, but I'm going to go out on a limb here and say, Pretty much no families are going to let their nine years old and younger girls stay up until 3 a.m. What are you doing until 3 a.m.? Like, I don't, I just don't even understand what one could be potentially doing. Are you having a movie marathon? Why are you still awake? What is keeping you up at that time? Because most people are going to be overcome with exhaustion by like 1 a.m. So it just seems so fishy. Or like you said, that law enforcement didn't key into this is really interesting to me. Yeah, I think they probably did key into it, but they just didn't let it be known publicly at that time. But uh, according to Penny, when she woke up, uh, none of Antoinette's clothing or personal items were missing. The only thing that was not there was, was the pink nightgown she had last been seen wearing when she went to bed. Even though Penny was certain that she had locked the front door and latched the adjacent screen door before she went to bed, 
Uh, she noticed that these doors were now unlocked and unlatched, so she started wondering maybe Antoinette just decided to step out uh, into the morning air or something. But once she checked with all the neighbors and found out that no one had seen Antoinette, she got really concerned and finally called the police in order to officially report her missing. So uh, here is the very first version of events of what allegedly took place in the middle of the night. We're going to hear a number of different stories. But at the time, the one that was reported in the newspapers back in 1986 was shared by the uh, middle daughter, Sadie. She claimed that uh, sh both she and Antoinette had been woken up in the middle of the night by the sound of knocking at the front door. And when Antoinette went to see who it was, uh, Sadie said she heard the sound of a man and a woman outside identifying themselves as an aunt and an uncle and saying, hurry up, open the door, we're cold out here. But apparently Antoinette looked out the window, did not recognize the man out there, and uh, refused to let them in, and then returned to the bedroom. Uh, and then according to Sadie, she soon heard someone knocking on the front door a second time, and while she recalled seeing Antoinette get up and leave to go see who it was, uh, Sadie said that she stayed in bed and pretty much fell asleep uh, immediately thereafter, so she could not be certain if Antoinette actually opened the door. But uh, her family said that Antoinette would never have opened the door for strangers, particularly in the middle of the night. But what seems weird is that Penny said that she slept through all this, that she did not recall hearing these two knocks at all. And uh, though if you look at the layout of the house, you'll see that the bedroom she was in, the master bedroom, was very close to the front door. So it seems weird that these two kids would be awoken by these knocks, but Penny would not hear anything. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Was Penny a drinker? Yeah, she was. So that is, has been pushed forward as an alternate possibility. If she had been drinking heavily that night or doing drugs and passed out, then potentially she could have slept through it. Yeah, I think that is extremely possible. Maybe even probable. Like you said, there are different scenarios here. We've got more information. If she is indeed involved, it very well could be a cover story. But on the other hand, if she isn't involved, then it could be an excuse in that if she was very intoxicated, and I mean, if she could have been up till 3am drinking, you're really exhausted. There may have been other substances involved, hence the 3am going to bedtime. It's just a little bit odd to be sitting around your home, even just drinking alcohol if you're not having a party. It's a little bizarre, and there's just something that really doesn't feel right about it. So perhaps she was just really, really drunk and didn't hear the knocking on the front door. I mean, I'm a heavy sleeper. I'm not a big drinker. Like, I'll have a drink on occasion, but I'm not a drinker where I'm drinking to get drunk. Like, I fall asleep. I'm really tired. The chance of me waking up in the middle of the night to the sound of knocking at the door, I probably wouldn't hear it. Whereas, like, my husband is keyed into, like, every single little sound. Are you like that? Or are you a heavy sleeper? Uh, I can be, yeah. So I think it is plausible that I could have uh, slept through some knocking if I was really, really tired. But it does seem kind of unusual that uh, both Sadie and Antoinette could be woken up twice within the course of the same night, and Penny just did not recall hearing anything. Well, they probably weren't drunk. Yeah, exactly. Hopefully. <laughs> I Hopefully. Mean, I, yeah, I hope that Penny was not that irresponsible a mother. So uh, they launched a missing persons investigation for Antoinette, uh, could not find any trace of her, and the investigation remained at a standstill for about an entire year until April the 12th, 1987, when a dispatcher at the Gallup Police Department received a phone call from a very frightened-sounding girl who repeatedly said that her name was Antoinette Cayadito and that she was calling from Albuquerque. Uh, the dispatcher tried to ask the girl for more details, but then uh, the girl was interrupted by the sound of an angry, unidentified man who yelled, Who said you could use the phone? 
And then the girl screamed and some scuffling could be heard before the call was abruptly cut off. And I know that uh, I sent you a link to the audio file because you can find the uh, 911 call on uh, YouTube. So uh, what are your thoughts on it? It was terrifying. Like, just to hear the panic in this little girl's voice, I 100% think that it is a genuine 911 call. I don't believe for a second that that's a prank. But something about it is strange in that it does feel like if it is a ti- if it is a kidnapping, it's an atypical one. Because what type of kidnapping would a child then have the potential to access a telephone? It seems a little bit strange. So there is just this one element of this kidnapping, of this 911 call, that does feel a little bit odd. Or I hate saying atypical over and over again, but that is exactly what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, some people have speculated that the call could have been some sort of mean-spirited prank because whenever uh, missing persons cases make the news, there will always be people who, like, decide to, like, mess with the police or torment the families. But uh, you listen to the call, and it's a little girl who does sound genuinely frightened. So if it was a prank, it was a pretty well-done one. Uh, one other thing worth mentioning is that the call, uh, it, it apparently lasted over a, a total of 40 seconds, but because this is technology from 1987, it does not sound the, like the dispatcher was able to, tra- to uh, trace it. Uh, but they've only released 20 seconds of the audio, which is the one that you found, you can find on YouTube. But it's been reported that the original recording contained the sound of another voice in the background, which may have belonged to an elderly person. And they could be heard asking who is on the line when the man yells at the crying girl. I mean, I can understand withholding details from the public, but it seems strange to me that this case is still unsolved after 37 years, and we've never heard the full 40-second audio. We've only heard that 20-second snippet. And all I could think was, why not play the voice of this other person in the background? Because maybe someone will recognize it and it could help the case. I mean, this would potentially support the narrative that there could be family involvement. Because in a situation where, say, a family member takes another family member, and especially when it's a young child, you might not have a situation where you need to, you know, bind their hands and their feet. But in a regular kidnapping, I would think that you would be sequestering that child somehow, and you would be binding their hands and feet. You would be making it impossible for them to escape and impossible for them to be able to call for help in any capacity. But that isn't what we see here if this is indeed genuine. Exactly. I mean, we have seen some other documented kidnappings like Elizabeth Smart, where the captor keeps the victim like in captivity for so long and creates such a climate of fear that they eventually give them a little freedom and allow them to do stuff like go out in public because they think I put so much fear into this young person, she won't dare try to escape or do anything to try to get away. And that could have happened here if Antoinette was being held captive for a year that maybe her kidnapper decided to give her some more freedom and uh, let her wander around the house, but then she decided to use the opportunity to uh, make a phone call. Uh, The audio was played for Penny, and she said that she was absolutely certain that the caller did sound like Antoinette, but she claimed she did not recognize the voice of the man on the recording. And a lot of people have speculated, like, if she really was being held captive in Albuquerque, why would she call the police department and gallop? Or, Or why wouldn't she try to call home or dial 911? Uh, my theory about that is that in 1987, uh, only 50% of the communities in the U.S. had 911. So uh, I'm thinking that either Antoinette didn't know how to use it or had never heard of it, or it was just not available in that section of New Mexico. And another point worth mentioning is that her family did not actually have a house phone at the time uh, she was abducted, and that Penny only installed one uh, just in case any kidnappers called or the police needed to get a hold of her. So if Antoinette's uh, trying to escape and wanting to phone for help, she's not going to phone her mother because her mother did not have a phone. And I've kind of theorized that if she was such a responsible person around the house, that perhaps at one point she memorized the phone number for the Gallup Police Department, and that's why it was the first number she dialed when she was trying to call for help. Yeah, I doubt she had like a phone book right there where she had a list of, you know, potential police numbers that she could call. Because it wasn't so easy as it is today, where it's like you just call 911 and you're connected. So the fact that she would be responsible enough to remember a number, I don't think we could get too bogged down in which number she called, Gallup or Albuquerque. I think the fact that she remembered one of them is pretty amazing, if that is indeed a genuine phone call, which 
I do think the point you bring up is interesting when you bring up the uh, what you said just a little while ago about the Elizabeth Smart case, where you see the people they people who were held under duress eventually are given more freedoms. You have Stockholm syndrome kind of kick in for some people. You have situations like Colleen Stan, where when she was released after being sexually tortured and held in this box for it was like years, I think when she was let go, she just like left and didn't go to the police wasn't until i can't remember the man the guy's name cameron maybe yes um, trying to remember his last name (laughs) yeah i can't remember his last name but when his partner kind of like found jesus or whatever and she decided to you know tell the pastor and then the pastor got the police involved and then they talked to colleen and then all of this came out and it was like whoa she just is let go and she doesn't even go to the police. But it's like he had told her this whole time that this organization was watching her and that if she made a wrong move, they were going to come for her. They've got all this time to brainwash. So it does make sense that she could have had a little bit of freedom and they might have trusted that she wouldn't be calculated enough at her young age to wait for that moment to try to make her move. Well, now that we're on the subject of uh, captive girls being allowed to be taken out in public, uh, that brings us to the next development in the case, which took place in uh, 1991. The FBI decided to release an age-progressed composite sketch to show what Antoinette would have looked like at 14, because she had been missing for uh, about five years at this point. And uh, after this uh, composite sketch was released, uh, the authorities were soon contacted by a waitress from a diner in Carson City, Nevada, who uh, claimed that she had served a teenage girl matching Antoinette's description. Uh, According to the waitress, uh, the girl was in the company of of a white man and a white woman whom she described as looking unkempt. She said that the girl who looked like Antoinette appeared to be really shy and frightened and never looked up, and that uh, when she was serving them, she would do weird things like intentionally knock her fork on the floor and get the waitress to go pick it up, as if she was trying to uh, capture her attention. And then later on, the couple and the girl left, and when the waitress was coming to collect the plates and the check, uh, she found out that the girl had written a message uh, under a napkin with the words, help me, and call the police. And of course, once this waitress saw Antoinette's aged composite sketch, she thought, she bears a resemblance to this girl, so that's why she decided to contact the authorities. Uh, In retrospect, I do not believe that this girl was Antoinette. I think this was probably a mistaken eyewitness sighting. But it's kind of a compelling mystery within a mystery because it makes me wonder, who was this girl and why was she writing these secret messages in order to call for help? I mean, I guess there's any number of reasons. It could have been a situation where she could be with her family members and maybe she's being abused in some way. That's why she's not looking up. She might not be kidnapped. It could be really simple or or she could be another missing child who's been kidnapped. There is no shortage of that when you look all across the U.S., You don't even have to look locally. It could be somebody from another state. But it could just be somebody so simple as there's violence in the home. They're being abused, whether, you know, psychologically, emotionally, sexually, and they really need some kind of law enforcement intervention. Yeah, that's the vibe I got, just the way that she was acting, her body language when she was in public, where it it felt like she was fearful of the two people she was with and was just trying to capture the waitress's attention. And it makes me feel kind of bad for her because if she wasn't Antoinette, it makes me wonder what happened to this girl. I hope she turned out all right. But uh, one reason that I am inclined to think that the uh, eyewitness was mistaken is because we see so many missing persons cases where they see a photograph of the missing victim and then see someone that they're completely certain is the victim, but then it turns out they were wrong. Well, this is a case where she's not even judging the appearance on a current photo of Antoinette. She's looking at an age-enhanced composite sketch to show up what Antoinette might look like at age 14, but we don't even know if those things are really accurate. So I am inclined to believe that the waitress just saw another girl who kind of looked like the sketch. I'm inclined to agree with you just because we've got eyewitness sightings that are so problematic. We've got nobody to substantiate this possibility that this could be Antoinette based on what she looked like there. Like if there was, you know, another couple waitresses, maybe one of the cooks had seen her. There was a few other people that were like, yeah, you're right. It could be her. But again, when we're working off an imperfect sketch here, this isn't like just a composite sketch of Antoinette. Like you said, it's age progressed. So they're just assuming she's going to progress like that. There's a lot of variables that go into how someone ages and how someone grows, how much sunlight they're getting, what type of food they're eating, 
you know, their psychological state, how much exercise they're getting. There's so many different factors, just how well taken care of she is. You're just going to assume that she's going to age in this linear way, but that isn't always the case. Somebody could be stunted with their growth or they could, they could flourish. They could grow taller and bigger. Their facial features could be slightly different for a variety of reasons. Say she breaks her nose. So I just think that the probability of that actually being Antoinette. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Is pretty low. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, particularly when you uh, learn the new information that I'm going to share later on. But that sighting was important in the long run because it compelled the uh, Gallup Police Department to start performing a new investigation and re-interview people connected to the case. And they also brought in an FBI agent because if Antoinette had been kidnapped and crossed state lines, it would technically make it a federal case under the FBI's jurisdiction. So the lead detective uh, from the Gallup PD, a guy named Marty Escabel, as well as an FBI agent named Kevin Miles, uh, they decided to interview Antoinette's uh, youngest sister, Wendy, who would have uh, only been uh, five years old at the time her sister went missing. And as you recall, the person who originally shared the story about the knocks on the door in the middle of the night was the middle sister, Sadie, so I don't think Wendy had really talked about it all that much. And what's interesting is that Escabel and Miles decided to approach uh, Wendy while she was at her school playground. They decided not to question her in the presence of her mother. And this is when Wendy just suddenly told an all-new story, where she said that sometime during the early morning hours, she was awakened by a knock at the front door, and when Antoinette went to answer it and asked who it was, a man replied that it was her Uncle Joe. And according to Wendy, she saw Antoinette open the door, but then Wendy then said that she saw two men grab Antoinette and force her into a brown van, which was parked in front of the house, before they drove away. So the investigators immediately asked, uh, Wendy, why did you wait five years to uh, tell us this story? And she said, well, I was worried I was going to get in trouble. I saw that my mother was crying a lot of the time and seemed upset, So, and I was worried that no one would believe me, so that's why I didn't say anything until now. But she said that she didn't really get a good enough look at the two men to provide much of a description. And it turned out that Antoinette did have an Uncle Joe who was married to Penny's sister back in 1986, but after interviewing him, uh, investigators learned that he had a rock-solid alibi on the night Antoinette, Antoinette went missing, so they ruled him out as uh, being the person who went to the door that night or having any involvement in Antoinette's disappearance. But the story, of course, is so weird because it completely contradicts the story that Sadie originally provided back in 1986. That's so strange. It's so weird that there actually is an Uncle Joe. But I wonder if they checked his alibi back then, and that's why they know that he had a rock-solid alibi. Because who could be asked about where they were on a date five years ago and be like, oh yeah, I was exactly doing this one thing, and be able to provide it to police five years later? That just seems odd. But maybe they already had that information, and they'd already interviewed all of the people close to Antoinette and all of her family members and so on. But don't you think it's like... <laughs> A little bit odd, these two guys, like, creep up on the playground, like, and they go to interview her when she's unaccompanied by an adult. It seems a little odd. I mean, I understand why they did it, because they're trying to get a genuine answer, but it, it all, it sounds a little sketchy when you do that to a child. And it's kind of funny, because they show a reenactment of it on Unsolved Mysteries, and as far as I can tell, Wendy is playing herself, and the two investigators are playing themselves. And while they didn't say so publicly at the time, I get the feeling that maybe they uh, privately had some suspicions about Penny, that they weren't telling the whole truth. And this is why they decided to question Wendy without the presence of her mother, thinking that, okay, if I, we sp finally speak to her, 
and uh, Penny has been withholding anything, then maybe Wendy will tell us. But instead, she gives them a completely different story about this Uncle Joe, which no one was expecting. And it is true, though. It does sound like that, uh, like, they did look at Uncle Joe back in 1986, and then they checked him out again five years later and became convinced that he did have a solid alibi and wasn't involved. So the speculation was that if this story was true, then whoever knocked on the door that night had intimate knowledge of Antoinette's life and figured, well, if she's comfortable with her Uncle Joe and we say he's her Uncle Joe, then she'll be willing to open the door and then we can use this opportunity to kidnap her. Okay, question for you. What do you think about the veracity of Wendy's statements? Given how young she was at the time, like how accurate do you think that they could potentially be? Or do you think that there's a possibility that she may have conflated kind of other information and kind of external information and built some narrative in her head? Because children have been known to do that. Well, that was what I was thinking originally, because uh, like we've had this story from Sadie that uh, there was a man and a woman knocking on the door in the middle of the night, claiming to be uh, Antoinette's aunt and uncle, saying, let us in, we're cold outside. But then Antoinette uh, looked out the window, saw that it was two people she did not recognize, and then refused to open the door. And it's never been clarified if Wendy was awake or witnessed this particular event, but it could be a thing where she was so young at the time, and maybe Sadie's told her this story that a bunch of stuff has entered her head to convince her that it was Uncle Joe uh, knocking on the door that night, and then Antoinette answered. And who knows, maybe she had a vivid dream about it and was convinced it was reality, and then all these years later, that was the story she shared with police. Because it's pretty easy to manipulate or implant false memories with people, even in a way that isn't malicious. I mean, psychologists do these experiments where they show people these pictures of their family on a vacation in this certain place, and they like superimpose their heads on there. And then they tell them about, oh, yes, no, you went to Hawaii. You were there. Don't you remember that vacation? And then as time goes on, they start filling in the gaps. They'll start telling you all these details of these vacations. They genuinely believe that this is something that happened to them. It's really not hard to do. So if you're like a seven-year-old child and you're having an older sibling tell you that, it could be pretty easy to take on that information. But it is also possible that she too saw something similar. It is true. And we'll talk more about this later on, but I think there is also a possibility that her mother could have fed her that story and basically said, if the police come to question you again, tell them that Uncle jo- someone claiming to be Uncle Joe is at the door even though it may not even be true. So I first became familiar with this case when it was featured on Unsolved Mysteries in December of 1992. Uh, It had all this information about Uncle Joe and the sighting of the diner, and it also played the audio of the phone call. And uh, watching it now, it's very bizarre, because uh, at the time, there had never been any public suspicion that Penny was considered to be a suspect, or that the authorities believed that uh, she knew more than she was telling. So watching it, you just assume that Penny is a really bereaved mother who's doing everything possible to try to find her daughter. And there's this very weird section where uh, they show Penny paying visit to a Navajo medicine woman who was holding what they call a centuries-old Navajo ceremony called the Crystal Ritual, in which she is attempting to contact Antoinette's spirit. And the medicine woman is shown on camera saying that she believes Antoinette is still alive and being held against her will somewhere in the southwest United States, and may have even had her own child at that point. And of course, watching this at the time, it's like, okay, this is Unsolved Mysteries. They love looking at people who supposedly have psychic abilities and stuff, so they're just kind of doing this for the camera. But as the years went on, uh, authorities would start directing suspicion about Penny, so you have to wonder, is she visiting this Navajo medicine woman just to like give off the impression that she's innocent, and that she has no knowledge of what happened to her daughter? Yeah, it could go either way. I mean, she could be trying to do too much in the sense that she's trying to, like, just put herself out there like the lady doth protest too much. Let me just go around and, like, do all of these things and try to look the most innocent. But it also could just be this is part of her culture, and she's really trying to connect to it in order to speak to her daughter's spirit or in order to commune with her in some type of way. So it could be interpreted in a multitude of ways. If you're in the camp of thinking that she has something to do with Antoinette's disappearance, then it could just be like, this lady is doing this for optics type of a thing. Yeah, it's certainly possible in retrospect that that's possibly what she was doing. I'd be really curious to know who came up with the idea of taking the case to Unsolved Mysteries to begin with. 
Because if Penny had involvement in, in Antoinette's disappearance or knew what happened to her, I cannot see her uh, deciding to want to get the national exposure for the case on television because Unsolved Mysteries did play a role in solving a lot of cold cases back during the 1990s. But if it's a case where law enforcement decided to take the case to the show, then I can see Penny thinking, well, it's going to look suspicious if I'm not interviewed and don't go along with it. So I'm going to try it for optics. I'm going to play the role of the bereaved mother. What about Jewel Kaler? Did he bring that case to Unsolved Mysteries or was that law enforcement? I don't know that for certain. I have a feeling it wasn't. I think it was probably Dottie's sister because she was working fervently to find her. And he pretty much figured, well, they're going to put me on camera. I got nothing to hide. So I'm just going to say whatever the hell I want. And the rest is history. <laughs> yeah, that is that was shocking. I mean, there are certain people like Tim McClure, you know, and the murder of Terry McClure. That didn't come off very well either. There's some where you're like, why are you even doing an interview? Somebody should have told you no. But yet they just go full force and... I think a lot of times it's a lack of education. With Jewel Kaler, it was not that. He was an intelligent man. He just chose to do the interview. And I think he was completely just like unaffected by the fact that he may come off in a certain way. He just knew that there was nothing that could be brought forth to be able to put him in prison. So he was just like a little flagrant about it. Pretty much. Yeah. And in this case, it's like, okay, well, who's the one who's pushing this forward? Because we do see people who just love attention, even though it might be like, hey, I had something to do with what happened to my child. It might be like, what can I do to garner the most attention because I'm somebody who feeds off of that? Well, I will say that at the time I originally watched this and for many years afterwards, I never thought of, of Penny Kayadito and Drew Kaler in the same sentence. Like, I didn't really feel suspicious about her at all. I mean, I did find the story weird that Antoinette woke up in the middle of the night to answer the door, but Penny seemed like a genuinely grieving mother. It kind of took me by surprise many years after the fact when I found out that the authorities uh, were suspicious of her. Uh, she was going through a really rough time after Antoinette's disappearance. Uh, she spent many years struggling with alcoholism and had to be institutionalized a few times. And it was in April of 1999 when she passed away at the age of only 46 due to cirrhosis of the liver and cardiac issues. And uh, uh, this is interesting. Apparently, uh, the FBI, they had interviewed her sometime in the mid-1990s, and they said that they were planning to re-interview her on her deathbed, but that she passed away before they could do so. So it seemed clear that they believed she might have had some knowledge that she may have wanted to get off her chest, but they just never got the opportunity to get it. Damn. Yeah, I know. So that's sad that they never got that opportunity. And like, just wanted to touch on really quickly in regards to what you said earlier about how you didn't think of Penny and Jewel Kaler in like the same vein, because you thought like she's just a grieving mother. I think even if she is involved, she still can be a grieving mother. I think one can look back in retrospect and go, I have these, I have these great regrets. This isn't what I should have done. I am, you know, falling apart at the seams here emotionally. I mean, people do make mistakes. I mean, that's a catastrophic mistake if you do that. But I think that to assume that they aren't going to grieve, I think would be a wrong assumption. I think unless you're, you know, a psychopath, you're probably going to have some sort of grief, even if they were kidnapped or died at your hand. Oh, yeah. Like, I never got the sense that uh, Penny was a psychopath. I do believe that if she was complicit in her daughter's disappearance or gave her away, that she eventually uh, came to suffer great remorse about it. And I think that's what led to her self-destructive lifestyle and her becoming an alcoholic and dying at such a young age. But uh, it was kind of weird because the detective who was interviewed on Unsolved Mysteries, Marty Escabel, uh, he was interviewed for a newspaper article in 2010. And by that point, he had left the department and was no longer working on the case. And for the first time, he publicly expressed his suspicions about Penny, saying, quote, I'm pretty confident that Penny had knowledge of who took Antoinette based on her failing a polygraph test administered by the FBI, end quote. So in retrospect, you're now thinking it makes a lot more sense now that he decided to go and uh, interview Wendy alone while she was on the playground because he had these suspicions about Penny all along. Yeah, and you know, as an investigator, even though that's the wrong move in the sense that you can't really go forward with anything that child says in court because they need to have a guardian present. But if you're trying to just get to the crux of the story here and you really want to see if this is 
going to kind of diverge from her initial statement, if there's going to be anything unique, if there's going to be similarities, because what they're looking for is consistency, right? There may be other elements that you remember, but the general like meat of the story should remain the same. It's when somebody's giving you something completely different, you're going, whoa, okay, why? Why is this different? And I think it's because of all those reasons that we discussed previously. It could just be because she's conflated these memories with her sister Sadie. It also could be because her mother has fed her this. And it also could be because it is a genuine memory. Yeah, it is possible. Like, I'm sure they were just checking, like, every option that they had. But it did surprise me, though, when I was researching my podcast episode that other police detectives did have some suspicions, not not specifically about Penny, but against members of the family, because I found a 1987 article in, in the Albuquerque Journal where a police detective said that, where he confirmed that no one had yet been ruled out as a suspect, including family members, and he said this, quote, Uh, My gut feeling is that some family members may not be telling us all they know. He said that police originally did not know that a number of people had been in and out of the Cayadito residence on the night of Antoinette's disappearance, and it was one of those things where uh, Penny just did not reveal this ahead of time and only, like, did it, like, days after the fact, even though you should tell police everything if your child has gone missing. So it sounds like they had suspicions about her from the get-go, but uh, were electing to keep it private until after uh, Penny passed away. So murky and, like, insidious. What would these family members want with Antoinette? What did they do with her if they were indeed involved? Did they hold her against her will? Did they sell her into sex trafficking? Did they keep her for some kind of nefarious purpose? It's just so convoluted and confusing. And I hate to even think of the awful things that could have befallen this little girl. But the fact that police seem to keep coming back to this common denominator of the family, we hate as, you know, true crime podcasters to ever point the finger at the family unless there is substantial evidence to prove their involvement. But when law enforcement keep revisiting this and keep, and keep like articulating their suspicions, there's potentially something there. Oh, yeah, like it should be confirmed that Penny was never publicly named as a suspect or person of interest, and that even if law enforcement had their suspicions about her, they did not have any evidence to show that she was involved, which is why they kind of kept their suspicions private. But one other thing I wanted to address is that there's a rumor that has spread about Penny for many, many years. I've seen it on online message boards and in forums and discussions about this case, that she reportedly purchased a new sports car the very week after Antoinette went missing, which if was true, would look very, very sketchy because this was a family living in poverty in a low-income housing area, and she should not have the money for a sports car. So if it was true, it, it lends possible credence to the idea that maybe she sold her daughter for money and was just kind of flaunting it now that Antoinette was gone. But the problem is, I've never been able to find any media source, any newspaper article that shares this sports car story. And I'm trying to figure out where it originated, and I think someone who claimed to have inside knowledge of the case left this comment on WebSleuths many, many years ago, and I think people have taken this comment and spread it as fact, but I just want to confirm here that I have no idea if this story about Penny getting the sports car is true. I've never seen this verified by any credible source. And I will go out on a limb and say, if she was involved... And that's a big if, like we don't know 100% here. And I haven't heard the rest of the story and what this new information is. But if you want to get rid of a child because three children are too much of a burden, you're not going to pick your oldest child who takes on a motherly role and does a lot of the work for you unless it's for some type of monetary gain. You would pick the youngest because they would be the most of a burden. That would at least be my thought process. What would you think? Yeah, I thought the same thing. I mean, even though I have my suspicions about Penny, I do find it unusual that if she had too many children that she would give away the oldest one who has helped her out so much around the house and become the mother figure and is also going to have a memory of her previous life because theoretically, if she decided to give away Wendy, she's still only five years old. So if she goes off with someone else, she could forget her identity and lose all memories of her family. So it just seems weird unless she encountered someone who had a special interest in Antoinette and then decided I'm going to give her away because that's the only way I can make money and relieve myself of a burden. I mean, maybe she knew somebody that was like, this is the age group that I like. 
right? Prepubescent, but not a five-year-old. And I'm just speculating here. This is just an idea, but it just seems like such an odd thing to give away a child who will be the first out of the home. So you will have to provide the least amount of support for her, right? Because she's nine. She'll be out of the house in nine years, in theory. And so she'll be out. But a five-year-old, you're going to have many more years of support. And you have to do so much more for a five-year-old, especially in a situation where you have your eldest daughter who's basically taken on the mom role when you're out working or drinking or whatever she was doing. So it just seems very strange that she would be the one to get rid of if you felt like you had too many kids. I just think logically you get rid of the child who is the most work, and that's typically the youngest. And to expand upon that point, Antoinette was described as being very headstrong and mature for her age. So if that is actually her making the 911 call, that would kind of fit with her personality, that even if she's being held captive by someone, she's probably smart enough to say, if I say the right things, he might give me some freedom to wander around the house, and I'll use this as an opportunity to call the police. And once again, that's a reason why it doesn't seem logical to give away a nine-year-old child unless the person who abducted her specifically wanted her. And uh, we're going to talk about this later on, but there has been a suspect who popped up on the radar who may have had an interest in Antoinette. Well, before I talk about that part, I wanted to mention that in 2016, the Albuquerque Journal decided to run a 30th anniversary article about Antoinette's disappearance. And uh, Wendy decided to speak about the case for the first time, I believe the first time she had ever been interviewed since the uh, Unsolved Mystery segment back in 1992. And Wendy revealed that she had also led a very rough life with issues with uh, substance abuse, with drugs and alcohol. And like her mother, she also had been institutionalized for some point. Uh, She even said as she was growing up that her and Penny would become so bereaved about what happened to Antoinette that they would actually drink together or get high together in order to numb the pain because her disappearance was just causing so much grief for the family. Uh, By this point, Wendy had had a total of five children and there were times where the children were actually taken away from her by the state. And she also got involved with criminal activity, and she was affiliated with a gang at some point. But by 2016, she said she had finally cleaned her life up. She was living in California with her husband and her children. She had reconciled with them. And uh, she finally spoke about the case and how it led her down such a self-destructive lifestyle that she finally checked herself into rehab and uh, finally uh, reconnected with her kids and was now living a happy life but she still wanted to uh, find out what happened to her sister. But of course, she said that after all this time, she didn't have any real insight on what happened. Uh, She was now saying that she didn't really believe that the Uncle Joe knock actually happened. She was kind of vague about how she said it. She didn't really say that it didn't happen. She just says that maybe it wasn't my Uncle Joe who showed up at the house that night. But her most interesting comment is that she said she was now estranged from her other sister, Sadie, who had not talked about the case in many, many years. I don't think she had gone on the record since 1986. And as we're going to talk about momentarily, uh, Sadie has recently come out with some new insights, which will cause you to look at the case in a different light. I was just going to say, I really want to hear what Sadie has to say. She was the middle child, right? So she would have a little more insight, and she was the one who had a story right from the jump. So I would give a little more veracity to the statements of Sadie than that of Wendy, just because of the age difference. Sadie was seven, Wendy was five. Your recollection of things at the age of five is kind of murky at best, but it gets a little more solid, I think, by the age of seven. So I'm really interested to hear what she has to say and why the two of them are estranged. Well, I still don't know why they were estranged. I get the feeling that they might have different outlooks on what they believe happened to Antoinette. And uh, Sadie has recently been interviewed, but I still have no idea if she's reconciled with Wendy. But I can un- I can kind of understand because Wendy fell into substance abuse issues and criminal activity. And as far as I know, Sadie has stayed away from that. But I get the sense that uh, Wendy and Penny were, were like getting into drugs and alcohol to deal with the grief of losing Antoinette, whereas Sadie wanted to handle things differently. And that's probably why she became estranged from her family. This new information that came out, I mentioned in the intro, they they launched a new YouTube series called Disappeared Into Darkness, which had a two-part series about Antoinette Cayadito's disappearance, and it was hosted by a journalist named Crystal Gutierrez, who finally got some access to some files from the FBI, 
Because like I mentioned, during the mid-1990s, they did an interview with uh, Penny where she supposedly failed a polygraph and they did an in-depth exploration into her story. But uh, this investigation, none of the results were released publicly until this very moment. And uh, most importantly, Crystal Gutierrez actually tracked down Sadie and got an interview with her and she agreed to go on the record for the first time and tell a different version of events that we've heard for the past 37 years. Wow. That is pretty insane to go that long and to be radio silent. I'm, there's a variety of reasons, and I could never judge a family member, especially a sibling who was a young child and incredibly traumatized from that. But to find that moment and to find that strength to go, I want to tell my story. That is so powerful. Exactly. And uh, some of the stuff that Sadie says here is pretty shocking. And uh, it makes you wonder, like, why she never mentioned it earlier. But I guess she was just dealing with so much grief that she just did not feel comfortable going on the record about this and making it public. So I think this is about a good point to end part one. So uh, join us next week for part two as we continue to discuss the unsolved disappearance of Antoinette Cayadito. Robin, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Trail Went Cold Patreon? Uh, yes, the Trail and Cold Patreon has been around for three years now, and we offer the standard uh, bonus features like early ad-free episodes, and I also send out uh, stickers and, and sign thank you cards to anyone who signs up with us on Patreon. If you join our $5 tier, uh, tier two, uh, we also offer monthly bonus episodes in which I uh, talk about cases which are not featured on the Trail Went Cold's original feed, so they're exclusive to Patreon. And if you join our highest tier, tier three, the $10 tier, uh, one of the features we offer is a uh, audio commentary track over classic episodes of Unsolved Mysteries, where you can download an audio file and then uh, boot up the original Unsolved Mysteries episode on Amazon Prime or YouTube and uh, play it with my audio commentary playing in the background, where I just provide trivia and factoids about the cases featured in this episode. And incidentally, the very first episode that I did a commentary track over was the episode featuring this case. So if you want to download a commentary track in which I make more smart-ass remarks about Jewel Kaler, <laughs> then be sure to join <laughs> Tier 3. So I want to let you know a little bit about the Jules and Ashley Patreon. So there's early ad-free episodes of The Path Went Chilly. We've got our Path Went Chilly minis, which are always over an hour. So they're not very mini, but they're just too short to turn into a series. And we're really enjoying doing those. So we hope you'll check out those Patreons. We'll link them in the show notes. So I want to thank you all for listening. And any chance you have to share us on social media with a friend or to rate and review is greatly appreciated. You can email us at thepathwentchilly at gmail.com. You can reach us on Twitter at thepathwent. So until next time, be sure to bundle up because cold trails and chilly paths call for warm clothing. Music by Paul Rich from the podcast Cold Callers Comedy. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.